You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Joining me on the line is the Executive Director of Theatre Network Australia, Nicole Bayer. And uh, Nicole, welcome to RRR. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, uh, Theatre Network Australia is uh, a peak body for the performing arts. It's a a national organisation that works with everyone from independent companies, independent artists, small to medium companies and the main stage theatre companies. So I guess from your perspective, why is arts policy important? Well, um, good question. Um, We need arts policy because what policy does is policy guides government decisions, really, Um, and it also helps uh, the artists and and arts workers and arts organisations understand what their place is in in society too. So, you know, policy, it's a funny word, policy, isn't it? And and a lot of policy at the moment is done on the run, you know, with politicians just making making announcements um, seemingly out of thin air. but real policy is evidence-based and there's a lot of thinking behind it and um, um, it's, uh, you know, there's a strategic reason to, to introduce things. So we need that sort of thing for the arts as well. So that, you know, any money that is made to the arts is, is made for, for good reason. Now, if we're talking about the broader arts and cultural sector, uh, statistics yep. and data released by the Federal Bureau of Communications and Arts Research uh, uh, said that creative and cultural activity contributed $111.7 billion to Australia's economy in 2016-17. Now, that's yep. an enormous impact on broader Australian society, on uh, on the economy, uh, and with clear benefits in terms of artists who are being employed, tickets that are being sold, and so forth. Does it surprise yep. you, given the, the size of the... and the impact of that kind of contribution to the budget that the coalition have who've been in power for a couple of terms now they're coming into their third election their third federal election with apparently no arts policy at all uh, yeah it does surprise me and 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 i understand that that figure is pretty much the same as or more than mining that the arts and cultural sector has contributed more than mining which is astounding isn't it really um and and i think similar figures um have just come out about attendance something like 84 percent of people attend the arts um which is enormous and and you know more than attend sport actually even though we think that that's not the case um but I don't know why, Richard, because we haven't solved that in the arts yet, have we? Um, and and um, perhaps it's something to do with how we advocate, you know, that we we don't have those those rich mining companies to to do the lobbying. Um, look, it does surprise me. But look, Labor and the Greens have come out with some policies so far. Um, the the Liberals also did put some commitments to the to the arts in the budget in the previous budget that's gone. There haven't been any specific commitments to art and culture going forward um, if they win the election. But you know, there's still a week left. Yeah. Well, let's talk some of the specifics of policy for a moment, because, as you've said, uh, the Greens, uh, I think, late last week quietly launched their arts policy, and uh, Federal Labor's arts policy is having its formal and official launch this Saturday. Um, And I also know that a couple of the independents around the country um, are releasing arts policies as well, just to, to... 
reflect uh, their commitment and support to the sector. But let's start with the Greens. Um, uh, And their policy is fairly... Fairly slim, I have to say, compared to the arts policy that they took to the uh, federal election back in 2016. But what are your thoughts on the, I guess, the five main policy platforms for arts and culture that the Greens have put forward for this election? Well, look, the the Living Arts Fund, which is to guarantee artists um, a subsidy, which is um, equal to the difference between their other income and a living wage, um, that that's that's a great platform that they've they have actually committed to. You know, every every election they'll they will uh, advocate for that, um, and and that's something that we've seen in other countries working really well. So that so that artists are guaranteed a wage. Um, and don't need to go on the dole and then compete, you know, with other people. Um, so I think that's always a, a great policy. There's not a lot of detail in that. I agree with you. Um, so that's a shame. I, I think the, the, there's a platform about content creation. Um, so a lot of commitment to creating local content, and I think that's so important for us in Australia to have Australian stories told to us um, and, and not to just be buying, you know, cheap content from America um, and elsewhere. And, and um, I think also in that regard, the fact that uh, the Greens policy is reflecting changes in the the digital and the technological landscape. We currently have... Um, uh, kind of local content quotas for the traditional old television stations, but we don't have them, uh, as far as I understand, for streaming services like Netflix, Stan, etc. That's exactly right, and that does include that. So it does include the streaming services, which, yeah, that's right. It's fantastic. And that uh, policy also then includes uh, an additional $50 million per year for uh, an Australian content creator fund to ensure that yep. not only are there quotas, but there is then the opportunity to actually make uh, new Australian content to meet those quotas. Yep, which is fantastic and something that all the performing arts organisations have been calling for in, with regard to the performing arts sector as well. We think that there needs to be um, more money put into creating, you know, especially works of scale, large new Australian works. Um, there's a, a, a lack of funding or any opportunity to do that sort of thing. There's not enough investment in, in making local performing arts work. Um, so, um, I mean, that, you know, that fits within this content creator fund too. I mean, the other part of the Greens policy that's great is the education, the education partnership, the artistic partnership program, I think it's called, to fund artists working in classrooms with teachers. Um, And we all know that, you know, kids who learn an arts, uh, learn arts alongside their other there are the subjects do better in those other subjects and the evidence has shown that yeah i, I was that's for me certainly one of the uh, the impressive elements of the greens policy platform that notion of embedding artists in school so they can not only help teachers teach the arts whether it be visual arts uh, music acting uh, ro- creative writing etc but they can be there as a living example to inspire kids to help kids develop their own artistic expression yeah. and to in, to show them that you can have a career in the arts as well i think that that's a a great policy and you know they inspire the teachers as well when they're in those classrooms as teachers go wow i didn't really realize how much you know the kids would get out of this and then they go on to 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 do those programs themselves 
Yeah, now, um, in, uh, just a couple of the other quick uh, yeah. elements of the Greens arts policy. Certainly, uh, I was delighted to see their commitment to restoring funding uh, at the Australia Council to, what, pre-2013 levels. So uh, that's, yep. uh, that's significant. And also uh, a great commitment to the video gaming industry, including a new $100 million games investment and enterprise fund. Yep. Yep, that all sounds good. The thing, look, I, that I was a little bit disappointed in is that even though they have a really comprehensive um, Accessible Australia policy um, with an easy read version, which is fantastic, there isn't any specific policies on access to the arts. And and this is something that I think a lot of, you know, a lot of the politicians, they fall into this trap of having silos and, and forgetting that these things need to be cross-populated. Um, so, um, yes, have an accessible Australia in all other regards, but also within the arts, that's really important. And I was also surprised to see no reference to art by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians, uh, a commitment to First Nations exactly. artists. Yeah, it does seem a, a bit yeah. of an oversight there as well. So yeah, there's a small bit where, where there's two million of the content creator fund will be exclusively for First Nations content, but that's the only mention, yeah. Yeah. So the Greens Arts Policy, a Creative Australia policy, is available on uh, the their website, greens.org.au. You can track it down there. Now, this Saturday, uh, the ALP uh, have their uh, formal arts policy launch in Melbourne yep. uh, I don't I'm not across the details of what may be in there I know what I'm perhaps hoping for but Nicole am I correct in thinking uh, that Labor have previously committed at their uh, kind of national conference last year they've reinstated uh, well kind of recommitted to supporting the Creative Australia policy which was uh, a detailed arts policy uh, launched back yep. under the Gillard government Yes, yes, that's what they, they will be doing for sure um, because um, they've been mentioning that around the country, which is great. We don't want to do more, you know, detailed consultation when that policy exists. It does need some updating, you know, there are some areas that it needs to change. And they have also said that they will reinvest money back to the Australia Council again to, you know, bring it back to 2013 levels. Um, but there have been some things that they've announced. So um, in their Fair Go for First Nations platform, they have included support for NIACA, which is the National Indigenous Arts and Cultural Authority, um, and $3 million for existing dance and theatre organisations, as well as a new National Indigenous Theatre Company. So it's already been um, announced. Um, and that'll be over four years, um, with, but then with ongoing funding as well. Um, and so that's that's a pretty amazing thing for the arts, and that will that they will for sure they'll be mentioning that again on Saturday. The the notion of a, a national indigenous theatre company is something that's been talked about in the in the sector for quite some time. I'll be fascinated to see what model they present for that. I'm assuming it will be something more like the uh, um, uh, the the National Theatre of Scotland, for example, which doesn't have. Um, a theatre in one particular city but moves, literally moves around Scotland presenting work in different places and locations. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I agree with how is that going to work in practice because actually you still need headquarters yeah. um, and we don't want headquarters in every state. And, and let's face it, all the small to medium companies work in that way already. They don't have theatres. They just have an office somewhere and they tour nationally and they tour internationally. Um, so they are, they are essentially non-bricks-and-mortar organisations already. Um, so, yeah, it's not a new concept really. Um, but yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see how they how they um, 
collaborate with the existing theatre companies. So there is uh, Yuriyakin over in WA, there's Ilbidgeri in Victoria, and there's Mugulan in New South Wales. And there's a lot of smaller ones as well. But, you know, they are already creating lots of amazing work. So we need to make sure that anything new, that they will collaborate. And the other challenge there is a new company is then also going to be competing for sponsorship dollars and other income streams as well. So yep. that, that will yep. be interesting to see how that's resolved. Yep. If you've just tuned in, yep. I'm speaking with Nicole Bayer, who's the Executive Director of the uh, Peak Group Theatre Network Australia, and we're talking about arts policy in the lead-up to the election on Saturday week. Now, um, Nicole, you and I have talked in this conversation so far a couple of times about restoring funding to the Australia Council. We both agree that that's a, 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 an important policy platform to have. But for uh, people listening who aren't across the detail, why do we need to return funding to the Australia Council? Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure how to, where to start, really. Um, so the Australia Council is not the only place where arts funding happens at a federal level, so let's be clear about that. But it is one of the places, is one of the only places that indif- individual artists can go to get grants for their work. Um, and um, over its, its 50 years, um, the Australia Council has supported amazing artists who, who have, you know, they've had small grants to just develop some work and then have gone on to, you know, international success, um, whether it's literature or performing or music or whatever it might be. Um, so it's, you know, often that sort of that starting point for artists to just get that little bit of support that they need at the start. Um, but the Australia Council also does strategic work and that's been cut um, in the, in the, over these last six years. So the strategic work includes market development, so, you know, promoting Australian work overseas. You know, we've just got the Venice Biennale opening up at the moment, and those artists were supported through the Australia Council. Um, it, it, there, there isn't, you know, there isn't a market model that works for uh, developing artists. You know, they can't make commercially successful art. Not not all artists can do that. And yet they're important because they tell our stories, they um, they express what it is to be Australian, etc. Um, and then, of course, the Australia Council supports all the small to medium organisations and the major performing arts organisations um, to do their work as well. And, you know, and those audiences, as, as we know, are huge. Um, and um, if we didn't have the Australia Council, then there'd be a whole lot of people who'd be missing out because, that, you know, that the Australia Council subsidises those audiences' attendance at the arts. Um, but, you know, there's so many other reasons um, to talk to you about, but that probably would take an, a, another interview, I imagine, Richard. That could well be a whole separate conversation. So yes. uh, this Saturday we will see the, the details of... Uh, the Federal Labor Party's arts policy being launched uh, in Melbourne this weekend. Uh, and I'll certainly be able to talk about that in more detail on the program next week. And, Nicole, I suspect I will be uh, calling you for a quote or two for, an, uh, for an, a story on artshub.com.au about that policy as well. But I'm, okay. I, I'm certainly looking forward to finding out what is in store because, yes, the, 
the the idea of reinstating the uh, earlier arts policy, which was years in the making, detailed, analytical, and which placed as one of its central pillars Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art at the the centre of cultural activity in Australia, uh, struck me as an incredibly kind of important statement to make, uh, and the fact that that policy would then have also allowed arts organisations to have the security of six-year funding uh, from the Australia Council uh, so that they could actually plan strategically to grow and present more art across the country to people living in regional, rural, remote areas, as well as audiences in the CBD. I'm looking forward to finding out more uh, at that policy launch on the weekend. Yes, we all absolutely are. Yep. Nicole Bayer, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, if the uh, uh, the coalition do release an arts policy between now and the election, uh, I'm not expecting it to happen. But if it if they do, maybe I'll call you again next week for a quick chat just to find out what's in there. That sounds great. All right. Thanks very much, Richard. Thanks for your time, Nicole. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Nicole Bayer, who's the Executive Director of Theatre Network Australia. If you want more information about that organisation, jump online, www.tna.org.au. Independent Melbourne Radio, 102.7, 3RRR. You're safe till 2024, which is a new work by writer-performer David Finnegan, who joins us in the studio now. Hello, Richard. Good to be here. Good to have you in. So, um... The headline, the, the name of your show, You're Safe Till 2024, um, it doesn't necessarily inspire hope. I mean, look, 2024 is, is nearly five years away. I think, you, I think we can all relax and, yeah. and, you know, not stress about not stress about anything until then. So talk to us a little bit more about this work, which has been presented as part of Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 Festival, one of the more unwieldy festival names there is. But this is a work of, in, which has basically involved you interviewing scientists about climate change and the future of the planet and what presenting their ideas in a theatrical monologue to the audience well uh, so about a year ago i was um I, so i'm a playwright and a performer as you said and i work a lot with with climate scientists and about a year ago i was at a i was at a networking event which is not not my natural habitat um at all and uh, i met a financial advisor and um had this this two minute conversation this sort of a uh, moment of small talk with with someone who i wouldn't normally cross paths with and they um they were like oh you're a, you're a writer that works with scientists super interesting what um what's the biggest change happening in the world today uh, and I completely froze up and and had nothing to say to them in that moment and um, and the moment sort of passed by and they and they shifted really quickly on to, to talking about um, Hamilton the musical and how great that is uh, so I've sort of for for God nearly a year now or in fact more than a year I've been obsessing over that two-minute conversation and thinking God what what could I have said what how, if I had two minutes there how could I have summed up the whole of the you know everything that's happening on the the planet right now um, all of the huge changes and everything that's going to happen in the future in like a snap few sentences that's really going to capture someone's attention so for the last year I've been interviewing different scientists about 30 or so different scientists and I've asked each of them this same question what's the biggest change happening in the world today and their stories I've kind of taken them all and, and folded them together and uh, and that's this show so it's a sequence of elevator pitches about the future of the planet 
That's a very elegant way of putting it. I wish I wish I'd said that in the press release. That's much clearer than whatever I said. Yes, exactly. It's a sort of snapshot, a series of snapshots from different aspects of the changes happening in the planet. So, um, from from climate and global change through to uh, interesting stuff about what's happening with um, with uh, roadkill and uh, and the very fact that humans travel at this speed that that no species has ever travelled before in the history of the Earth um, and the consequences of that that sort of global connectivity. Um, so all of that kind of in these in these. Uh, microscopic stories which have been linked together um, by my collaborator musician um, Ruben Ingle as so we've sort of framed it as a bit of a it's a bit like watching a David Attenborough documentary but uh, but live and very lo-fi. Now what for you is the fascination about science because as an artist whether it's through uh, games and gameplay for example or through the work that you're perhaps best known for which uh, was about climate change and it was a theatrical piece which caught the attention of Andrew Bolt and others before it had even been produced possibly because of the title which was slightly provocative Um, but why this continued fascination with not only exploring science but presenting scientific ideas ideas and theories and information in a theatrical and accessible way. Well, I'm utterly obsessed with science and I'm obsessed with scientists and I'm very much not a scientist and that's really, I think that's pretty crucial. I'm a layman. I'm very much, uh, I, I don't I don't speak the language of science. I kind of, um, I come at it from the outside, which is a real, which is a real advantage, but I'm obsessed with it and I'm fascinated by these people who are, who kind of are trying to figure out and understand everything. That's such an impossible thing. Like, how can we even begin to understand the whole complexity of the planet and, and all of the uh, elements within it? But but that's exactly what science is setting out to do. Um, and the things that they uncover, I think, are really they're useful. I think science has a lot to tell us about how to live in the world. Um, but they're also just these phenomenal dorks as well. They're just these, um, you know, maladjusted people who... Uh, for some reason, and interestingly, you know, in the context of climate change particularly, scientists have been, um, for the last 30 years, in the position of having to tell the world something very, some very bad news that the world has not wanted to hear. And scientists are the last people that you would choose if you had to pick one group of people to give the world a very difficult message that was going to upset some people. They are not the people you'd choose. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm super curious about what it is that that drives these people and the sorts of things they uncover. And and honestly, the things that they have, the stories they've told me, um, I just find delightful and and I just want to share them. So yeah, it's a personal obsession. That's that's really what's at the root of it for me. Now the fact that the the title of this new work, "You're Safe Till 2024," does that suggest that? Uh, by 2024, we will have hit the kind of tipping point from which there is no recovery. Well, no. This this idea of a kind of time frame for tipping points is actually, I think it's um, I I really understand the urge, but it's a little dishonest. I think there is no specific moment in time in history where okay, now time runs out. Basically, uh, you know, I think for all of us alive on the world today, we were born after the crisis had started and we're going to die long before the crisis ends, the crisis really is is many generations long and for, for the next few generations at least, humans are going to be dealing with this huge problem. Um, no, the title, uh, there's a few aspects to it and I won't I won't share them all but um, that's something you'll have to come along to the show to, to find out about. But but one factor is that this is a, a six-year project. So I started this last year with um, with Ruben Ingle, the musician, and we've imagined it as a, a sort of a grando, grandiose six-year project which is going to build to a full-blown uh, epic performance in 2024 so it'll be a full eight-hour extravaganza at that time and so 
this is the first uh, public sharing of what we've uncovered so far, and it's going to keep growing and evolving and expanding until it hits that sort of the the full blown saga in in twenty four. Now let's maybe illustrate some of the ideas that you're presenting and exploring uh, in this work, which, uh, as we said, is going to be on at Bunjil Place in the studio at Bunjil Place uh, in Narrowarren uh, tomorrow night at 7pm and Saturday at 2pm. Let's talk about the chook, the humble chicken, <laughs> uh, which you use in this work, I understand, as an example of humanity's impact on biology, on nature, and in fact, on the planet. Yeah, this keeps coming up. Every scientist I speak with, more or less, is like, oh, do you have you talked about what's happening with chickens? And of course, after a little while, I had to be like, well, what's happening with chickens? So... 1945, about 70 years ago, uh, the average chicken weighed 1.4 kilograms. Uh, today, the average chicken weighs 5.2 kilograms. And that is four times as big in the space of one human lifetime. Um, now, that's that's sort of hard to get your head around. That, um, But uh, the, the number that really brought it home for me was that in 1945, the average chicken lifespan was about seven years. And today, the average chicken lives for about 10 weeks. So if you go out and have chicken today, then that chicken probably hatched around Valentine's Day. If you can think that far back to what you were doing on Valentine's Day, it would hatch then and it would have grown to be this quite colossal creature uh, in the last 10 weeks and it would have been slaughtered, you know, in the last in the last 24 hours. But what what blows my mind about chickens is this this notion that we throw out chicken bones on every street corner and in landfill sites all around the world. So billions of years from now, some far future geologist will be like sifting through the rock layers and when they get to our bit of the rock strata, what they will see will be trillions upon trillions of fossilized chicken bones. So chickens are the kind of iconic creature of our era. Now, the sheer notion of uh, there still being archaeologists millions of years in the future is kind of one one issue in its own. But also to use that example of the chicken, it's kind of we are we are changing the world in in genuinely frightening ways. We are uh, in, injecting animals and feeding them with hormones so that they 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 grow. We are breeding them to be bigger and fatter, uh, and we're not thinking about our impact on the planet with the audiences who come along long to see you're safe till 2024 what kind of impact do you want the show to have on them do you rather than them walking out with a sense of despair are you hoping to just to i know make them care about one thing oh gosh what you what you've already just you've you've thrown out three different emotions in that you said frightened you said hope and you said despair Um, what do you feel about about the kind of the this the all of the changes happening in the planet what's what's the motion what's the feeling for you i think the overall feeling for me is numb because it's it's so big kind of the changes that are happening on one level are very very small uh and we are observing those the the result of small incremental change Mm. uh but then the overall scenarios that we're being presented with and what we need to to do to to react and to change um does li- perhaps leave me feeling numb because where do you start as Absolutely, an individual? Yeah. Particularly when individuals are being told, oh, we need to change our behaviour to save the planet. But that's not going to do much unless the seven or eight largest corporations in the world who are the major polluters also change their, their behaviour. Yeah, so this, I mean, that's this complex... Uh 
tangle of feelings. I think, you know, I'd, I'd, agree, I'd agree with that. I feel numb. I also feel despair. I also feel a very visceral fear. I also feel hope at times. Um, there's this cocktail of emotions. I don't, I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of people, we all sort of feel this mix of things. This show, there's no way that I'm trying to tell people or trying to convince people to feel a particular way. If anything, and, and, and I'm quite, quite explicit about that, this show is about sort of sitting with this set of feelings that we have. And, um, you know, everyone's, everyone's going through their own sort of processes around this. Everyone's sort of somewhere between I'm really excited and passionate, I have to do something, I have to spread the word and change things, and or, you know, this weird apocalyptic, oh, God, maybe it'll be beautiful to see everything collapse, and, you know, at least the politicians and CEOs will have to admit that it's real through to, like, I, I, there's no, I'm just despairing. Um, and we kind of bounce around between this set of feelings. So this show isn't going to, this isn't progressing people, or, or, like, you know, telling, giving, I'm not giving anyone a kind of, here's a takeaway that you can feel good about and take action with. That's not what this is about. It's not a TED talk. This is about sort of sharing and acknowledging what it feels like for all of us in this moment and we're all going through a whole complicated thing in our own heads and hearts and if we can just actually share that with each other I feel like we're probably that's a that's a hard thing to do I don't often I don't know about you but I don't often get the chance to talk about the sort of you know eco anxiety because it's a conversation when it comes up at a you know at a dinner party or at a, at a around the around the table at a bar the conversation kind of runs into a wall and stops dead. It's not something I think we feel okay about sharing. And there's a lot of like, oh, I don't know enough to sort of have an opinion. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, you know, expert, so I can't talk about it. And that kind of shuts down the conversation too. So there is this thing where like, if we can just actually sit with those feelings and acknowledge how we're feeling, that's, I'm not saying that's, you know, what needs to be happening and that's, that's going to make a big difference, but it's certainly, um, you know, we're all kind of walking around with this burden right now. And it's nice to just sort of acknowledge that. Yeah. David, in all of this talk around humanity's impact on the environment, uh, every now and again you'll see, um, I know some people just, you, when we were talking, using the word despair earlier, the, the total collapse of the environment, the destruction of the human race. But I get the feeling you don't think the human race is going to die out. You just think some of us will die out. The steerage class passengers in the Titanic, for example. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but the Kate Winslet's of the world will survive. <laughs> You're using very specific metaphors here, Richard. Do you want to explain what you mean by that? Why, why Kate Winslet's? Why steerage? Uh, because uh, <laughs> there was a, something that you brought up in a conversation with the journalist Steve Dow in an article in The Guardian <laughs> I was reading as part of this conversation. Sure. Because, yeah, if the planet is... If the human race is on a planet and that planet is a ship, imagine that the, the Earth is the Titanic. Um, when the Titanic sank... The majority of people who drowned were the steerage class passengers who did not access have access to life rafts and life jackets. The uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio's of that film, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but no, the 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 kind of the way that climate change and, and global change is breaking down, as as I think everyone knows, is intersectional. It's not um it's it's not going to hit impact evenly, and it's not impacting evenly. Of course, like this, we we still often talk about this crisis as if it's in the future. Of course, it's it's not. It's happening now. It's been happening for a long time, and it will continue to happen and accelerate. And it's not going to impact everyone equally. So we are we are one set of people and we're going to have one set of experiences and everyone who's going to everyone in the world is going to experience it differently so there is a there is a kind of yeah class dynamic to how um to how global crisis is impacting in terms of do i think the um do i think the human race is going to go extinct i mean on a long enough time frame yes but um there is a sort of sense of well what's so what's uh, what's our obligation in that moment like you know how do we how do we deal with the fact that we're going to be we're going to have a 
pretty bad. Our children will have it worse. Our grandchildren will have it worse. That's all locked in. There's no kind of, you know, even if we stopped emitting today everything, there's still 50 years of worsening impacts ahead of us just based on all the stuff that's sort of in the atmosphere and the oceans at the moment. So we're going to be, that's the, that's the sort of uh, the reality that we're in for this century. It's going to be a rough ride. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways you can feel about that. And I think we all have to kind of go through that process ourselves. And for some people, it's an existential life and death crisis. And for a lot of us, that's just your life is going to become a lot, uh, your opportunities are going to narrow, Your um, there are things that you won't have access to that, that you do now that you're going to miss. Um, but then, you know, there's, as always, the future kind of throws up unexpected opportunities and things that we never could have dreamed of. And 50 years ago, we weren't looking at, we've had amazing social progress and things that are legal and okay now and accepted now 50 years ago would have been beyond the pale and I think we can continue to look forward to like amazing social progress and and uh, new opportunities and visions open up that we that we didn't dream of now um, so yeah there's a you know as ever the future is going to be not as good as we want it to be but not as bad as we fear it will be soothe your soul three triple r and I'm joined now in the studio by dancer, choreographer, and filmmaker Sue Healy, who joins us to talk about a work, Body, that's being choreographed on the third-year dance students at the Victorian College of the Arts, the VCA. Sue, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Hi. So what's it like working with students and on students as opposed to on uh, experienced professionals. professionals? Yeah. Look, I love it. You know, I... I was a student at the VCA many moons ago. <laughs> it's a very special place to me. Um, so the chance to come here and make a work on these wonderful graduating students was, yeah, incredible. They're young, they're inexperienced, but they're, you know, they're hungry for information. So it's been great. And I imagine they'd bring a, you know, a, a degree of passion, perhaps, that they do. represents uh, both uh, strengths and challenges because they yeah. throw themselves full on into the work. But yeah. does that mean that occasionally you then have to rope them in a little bit? Yeah, and say, absolutely. Yeah. Subtlety and nuance is something that I you know, have to work on with, with young dancers. But, uh, yeah, you're right. There's real passion there and... And they just, yeah, they're hungry, hungry for it. How did the, was this an invitation from the VCA or did you approach them? Or how did yeah, the, no, yeah. it was an invitation. Um, I made a large uh, installation work that was shown at the VCA last year, uh, a video installation work, um, which I showed at the Margaret Lawrence Gallery. So I guess the, the staff um, kind of saw that work and thought it might be appropriate for me to come and work. So yeah, I was jumped at the chance to spend three months here actually, you know, spending a long time to make this work. Um, so, yeah, it's been great. That is a significant amount of time to make the work, given that uh, I was talking to Stephanie Lake during Dance mm. Massive, for example, and she said she'd had about uh, two weeks to, yeah. to make a new work, for example. Yeah, that's the way it goes, I'm afraid, in the profession now. But, uh, you know, look, I only worked afternoons with them, so it wasn't full time. But, you know, to be here over a consolidated few months was, yeah pretty special in this in this world of choreography now the uh, the work is called body yes uh, and we, on one level a, a, a simple yet appropriate term for any kind of dance performance which is yeah. so focused on the physicality of the body the body moving through through time and through space but yeah. what did you want to explore in the piece yeah well look all dance of course uses the body but not all dance is specifically about it but this one is. So 
uh, it was just, I felt it was the perfect challenge to put to this, this group of young dancers to really think about what, what the body is, you know, how it moves, why it moves, and, you know, what bodies can communicate specifically. So, look, it was really rich territory for us. And, you know, I use film as well as movement in this to, to focus on many ideas about the body, from the cellular body to different species bodies and different body parts to even the celestial bodies, you know. So using infinite ideas of, um, of scale in relation to moving bodies in space. So from the micro to the macro. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And in the the use of film is intriguing because uh, working in film, both uh, the the moving image and still image is a is a key part of your creative practice, parallel to and part of your choreographic practice. Talk yeah. to us about at what point did you realise that you had two yeah. parallel practices or practices that were, were were separating and growing apart? Yeah. Very early in my career, I fell into film, and and I've been working. You know, these two two mediums bounce off each other. You know, throughout my career over many years now. Um, recently, I'm blending the two quite seamlessly. So I bring an element of film into live performance, which for many years I I didn't want to do that. I kept them quite separate. Uh, but I'm making portraits and I work in Asia a lot. So um, I make large scale film installations, really focusing again on the body, making portraits of dancers in particular. And uh, so yeah, at the moment I'm really enjoying how the two mediums butt up against each other, kind of, uh, yeah, force a, a rethink on how, how I think about movement, whether it be the moving image or the moving body. Capturing dance successfully on film can be a challenge. I've seen quite a few, yeah. uh, whether it's a, uh, a big budget commercial Hollywood film or uh, an independent short film about a dancer or a dance work that is showing in a festival, for example. Yeah. Um, so often I'm, I can watch a work like that and say, no, why aren't you showing us the feet? Why are you shooting people from the waist <laughs> up, for example? We need to see more of the footwork. We need to see more of the kind of the bigger impression of the body and then zoom in and give us the fine detail of the flex of a wrist, the extension of an arm and so forth. Yeah, Talk to us about um, how you kind of, how, how do you see the body when you are, whether choreographing or filming, are you... Kind of in your own mind, are you literally zooming in on fine detail? Are you looking hmm. at the big picture? What are you trying to capture? Wow, how long have you got? <laughs> I mean, this is my life. This is what I spend my life thinking about. For me, you know, each work demands a different lens, a different way of looking at the body uh, and how it interacts with the camera. Um, for me, it's very much about micro choreography. You know, the, the camera is such an incredible... Uh, device for us to see things that we normally don't see. It's taught me a lot about, um, yeah, about nuance and about subtlety. Uh, so what I'm always trying to do with the camera when I bring it into uh, a setting with dancers and the space is to create and to create knowledge about what what I'm trying to see. You know, I'm trying. It is micro. It is at a micro level, definitely. And then, of course, the edit is so important. You know, that is truly a choreographic part of the process, how I then build, build um, 
the information in the computer about <laughs> So how you build singing. a sequence, how it flows from, exactly. from passage to passage. Yeah. Uh, and to what extent then has this awareness and focus on film influenced and shifted mm. uh, your choreographic practice when working, for example, with the students in body? Yeah. Are, are you, have you over time come to focus much more on minute articulations and extensions of the, of the body? I think that is what I love about it. It enables me to get in really close close and to give so it, it does affect how I make a live work for example we're in a space at the VCA it's a new theatre which is very deep uh, not very wide but very deep so it makes me think about close-ups in really interesting ways so I often use the depth so I will have bodies very close to the audience and I mean very close and then very far away so just that perspective and scale uh, that film has taught me, um, I bring that into creating a live work. Now, obviously, the students at the VCA, uh, the third-year dance students, are benefiting from working with you. They're learning. Mm. What do you benefit from working with them? What do you learn? What do they, do they teach you as well? Is, oh, it, is it reciprocal? Definitely. You know, I love to work with different ages and different bodies and different cultures. But so it's really important that I connect with the youth. I, you know, so they, they show me what their interests are now. They show me what the young person is thinking. And, uh, you know, that's really valuable. On the other level, on the other hand, I work with, you know, people much older. I, I'm working with Eileen Kramer, who's 104 years old. So I love that, that you know, the difference in how a 104-year-old artist thinks from a 19 year old and yuck, that just makes my life uh, really exciting to be able to deal with that. I love the fact that Eileen is still dancing at, at yeah. 104. Yeah. Uh, she was part of uh, uh, was it the Move Me Festival in Canberra, in Canberra. Just, just recently? And she's also just recently had a memoir published as well. Yes. So uh, fascinating and, and yes. inspiring as well to know that you can still kind of be flexible and fit and uh, and utterly swept up in life oh, at, at any age. And be creative, continue to be creative, whatever age you are. Now, so as part of this uh, work body, which is showing uh, in the Martin Meyer Arena uh, in Grant Street South Bank, you enter via Lionel's, the bar, if people are familiar with that, uh, and tickets are 20, 25 bucks. So it's on uh, from today at 7.30pm. So uh, tonight, Friday night and Saturday night at 7.30 each night. But With a matinee on 2pm. On Saturday. On, on Saturday. Yep. Great. So four performances all up, uh, yes. chances to see it. You're working with uh, music uh, for this particular piece by The Next, again, a track called Body. Yes. yes. Uh, why The Next? Look, I've always been a fan of this band. It's a Sydney band. You know, they're utterly unique in what they do. I've never had the chance to work with their music, um, but when I came across their work, Body, it was just a no-brainer and, and it's just... It's provided this incredible soundscape for me to work with. And had, uh, in terms of then how that sound, how the texture of the yes. music, uh, does that then directly shape an impact on uh, your choreographic vocabulary in this instance? Yeah, it does. Uh, because their music is so trance-like and uh, I have, it's, it's really setting up this sonic scape, for, soundscape for me. Um, the the action often be, fights against the, the sound at times. At times it's driven with it, but it's just given me this incredible um, psychological landscape in sound to play with. 
We're going to hear uh, a little bit of Body by the Necks in just a moment, but uh, I've been talking with Sue Healy about her work Body, choreographed uh, uh, in collaboration with the graduating dance students from the VCA. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.